that words have never been so true. What a joy it is to worship together and worship the holy name of God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. We continue to stand and we'll read from Genesis 1:26 today. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? Yeah, a joy to bring the message for the next couple weeks, uh, filling in for Mike. Uh, it's a great opportunity. I love to be able to do that. Let me just start by saying, just telling you a little bit of a story, a little bit about me. Growing up, I grew up in a family of four, my parents, my sister, and me. Every year that I can remember growing up, we would take family vacations every summer. And I remember so many of those camping trips. But what I remember most is every time, almost every time we went on a vacation, we would camp. And not like, you know, the glamping type stuff, you know, where you got the nice RV and the nice bed and the heat and the, or the AC. No, we roughed it, man. We had the tent and we had either the cot, you know, we slept on the cot, the hard cot, or even better, we slept on the air mattress that, you know what it is, when it gets cool out at night and all that air ends up out of that air mattress and then by morning you end up on the ground. I don't do it anymore. I have a teardrop trailer that I, my wife and I sleep in. My kids still rough it in the camp. I paid my dues, now it's their turn. But I remember these camping trips, the experiences. When I was about 12 years old, we went camping in Colorado. And I remember this so vividly because I also, at that same time, I had this, this hobby. I wanted to collect rocks. I think a lot of kids want to collect rocks when they're younger. And we would go to rock shops and check out all the little rocks and stones. But I had this particular interest with geodes. You know what geodes are? They're a, they're, a, they're a rock that spends years and years pressure under pressure, and inside there's oil, oil inside, and through that, through all that pressure, all that time, inside they become hollow, and inside is usually crystal. These are like things like amethyst, and they're, they're just beautiful. And so I looked everywhere I could for, ge particularly geodes, and I remember sitting in the campsite with my collection of rocks for that day. And part of my hobby is I had a rock hammer. Do you know, you know what a rock hammer is? Let me, let me explain it to you. It's about this big. It looks like a miniature pickaxe. It has a hammer on one end and a spike on the other. And it's meant to dig through and, and, and I thought to split rocks open, because that's how you open a geode, is you split it open. Either, but then I learned later that you actually cut it, but that's beside the point. So there I was in, in our campsite, sitting at our picnic table in our campsite, and I had my rocks, and I had my rock hammer, and I was ready to go to work. And so I grabbed my first rock, 
and I held on to my first rock, and I picked up my hammer, kind of like Thor, and I was ready to go, and I swung, and it went right through my thumb. It hurt. There was blood everywhere. Blood on my clothes, blood on the rock, blood on the table, blood, it just, blood on the rock hammer. And for some reason, here's my memory of this, is why it's so vivid. My father was the only other person in the campsite at this point. I don't know where my sister and my mom went. But my dad came over, as a dad does, and he, he dressed my wound. He got it to stop bleeding. He dressed it, and uh, he put some stuff that just burned like crazy on it, you know, because back then, if it didn't sting, it wasn't working. So he put that on, and, I, and the whole time, he had this smile on his face. I just thought he thought it was funny. But he, my father... Uh, just give you a little bit of a background. My father uh, was a pastor of 40 plus years, and he took this opportunity. I, let me just say, my father, he passed just a, about a couple of years ago now, and he was a mentor and a friend and a confidant, and I'm so thankful that I had him in my life, but he took this opportunity to teach me a lesson he said, you know, son, there's going to be times where you're going to be hurt in life. And he was telling me how proud he was, how I dealt with that situation. He says, you're going to be hurt. You're going to be hurt emotionally. You might be hurt physically, maybe even spiritually. But it's not about getting hurt that's important. It's about how you act going forward. He said, you're going to get hurt. It's how you deal with the hurt. He said, as you grow as a man, I, and I, at that point in time, I thought it was just the fact that I didn't cry. I was just like, I think I was in shock, but I didn't cry and, and, and squeal and do all this stuff. He said, it's about dealing with the pain, learning from it, and moving forward. I've never forgotten that. I, I, was, I had the joy of living with a family that taught me, my father taught me what it means to be a man. Let me ask this question. What defines a man? Is it simple biology or physiology where you get to a certain age and, and a certain stage of development and then instantly you're a man? There's more to it than that. Is it, 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 what defines a man, is it when that, that man is, the young man is able to, to move out of his family's home and financially support himself, leave his parents and financially support himself? I hope not. I, I left my home for the first time when I was 17. At the time, I thought I was big stuff and a man. Then I look back on it and go, I was not ready to move away from my, my parents. Is it when you have the ability and maybe take that first drink legally? Or maybe it's when you have the right to vote. Or maybe, maybe it's when you, a young man has his first encounter with sex. Again, I hope not. Statistically, in today's world, the average male young man has his first sexual experience by the age of 15. Those aren't men. 
Is it when you can drive? I hope not. From South Dakota, where we came from, you could get your driver's license at 14. Let me tell you something, those are not men. They are not responsible enough to, well, that's beside the point. In history, if you look at different cultures and throughout history, being the mark of a man was having the ability that he could, he was strong enough to go off to war or to, to defend his, his village or his family. Also, he, could, he had the ability to hunt and to provide food for his family. That was the de definition of the man. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a closer look. We're going to take a pause from Thessalonians, uh, that series that we've been doing. For the next four weeks, Andrew and I are taking these next four weeks, and we're going to walk through a series we're going to call the God-shaped man. What is God, how does God define that? Because let's be honest, in today's culture, there is no clear definition of being a man. In fact, it's pretty convoluted. It's pretty cloudy. It's pretty confused uh, if you just look at the world today. And we thought it was important. It's, the series is, is an adaptation, certainly a gospel-driven series, but it is an adaptation of a book called Raising a Modern Day Knight, which is a book by Robert Lewis. He's a, a longtime pastor. It's actually distributed by Focus on the Family. Mike uh, Freeman recommended this book to me several months ago, and as I, when I read it the first time, I, I went back to him and said, you know, this would be a great series, and he agreed too. And so we thought, this is, this is going to be the time we're doing it. Mike is, and his family are, are doing other things, or scheduled to do other things, and so he was going to be gone the month of July. And so we decided, we're going to do this series, because... There is no clear cultural definition for being a man. But there is a clear definition for being a godly man. Matt Chandler, author, he said, he said once or wrote once, he said, men of God have a strong fear of the Lord. But, but the definitions in the culture are very clouded. And I think part of the factors in this, and, and not all, and, and, and certainly to say that not all men who ra are raised in this world can't be men uh, and this, by this definition, but, but with the, in today's world, we deal with broken families. We certainly are we're seeing a dealing with absent fathers in today's world. And now more than ever, I think for the church, the mission of the church is to stand collectively and say, this is what it means to be a man of God. This is what it means to be the man that God designed you to be and for you to aspire to be. Raising a Modern Day Knight literally does this. It, it, it's, it's a pastor, he, he, he wanted to write a manual how he and, and two of his friends that he grew up with and went to seminary with and served in church with, they all had sons. And I have, I have a, a son, a teenage son, and it kind of resonated with me, saying, you know, back in, in, in the medieval times, the, the pinnacle 
of a man, the definition of a man, was the knight. And there was a clear path how to become a knight. You were a page, and then, and then, you, then you became a squire, and then with squire, then you, you learned the trade. But, but knights, in, in, in time, they lived a code, a code of honor, a code that said we are to defend the weak, we are to, to grow as individuals in our wisdom, we're to protect those, we're, we're to be truthful, we're to be humble. There, there, was a, there was a code of honor. Now, certainly men that became knights didn't all fill that, didn't meet that expectation, certainly. But the code was there. We don't have that in today's world. And so we're going to spend these next few weeks just talking about that. So men... This series is, is for you. Fathers, if you have young sons, this series is for you. Sons, young, old, this series is for you. But ladies, I'm, I'm not, we're not forgetting you. This series is for you too. This series is, is based to, to define what a man should be, or at least aspires to be. If you're a single lady in this, in this room today or, or watching at home, listen. Lean into this. Because this very well may be characteristics that you should look for in a potential partner. My oldest daughter is 24 years old. She has a, what I would say is her first serious boyfriend right now. I am not ready for it. They've talked about how many kids they might have or want where they might live, and I'm going, whoa, 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 slow down. Nobody asked me permission for this. Apparently she doesn't care. It's a side note. We want you to listen and take these characteristics to heart. The first big idea this week that we want to focus on is that the God-shaped man accepts responsibility. He accepts responsibility for who he is, for his purpose. You could even maybe put a little note if you're filling out the, the fill in the blanks. You could put a little side note or an asterisk. You could replace accepts with embraces. Why do we know that to be true? Why, why do we, we believe that the God-shaped man accepts responsibility. Well, we start all the way back in create the story of creation. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. This is the part of the creation story. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now let's stop right there. Right there in those few sentences, we get this understanding. One, that you are God's creation. Men, you are God's creation. Women, you are God's creation. Not only that, but Scripture says you are created in God's image. 
Have you ever really stopped to think about that? Through all the universe, we are the only ones that are created in God's image. I love watching like nature shows and watching all the animals. I particularly like the nature shows that show kind of the quirky animals that are just kind of like you look at them like, whoa, that is really weird looking. Right? They got a light on, you got the anglerfish that's got the light on him, or, or that kind of stuff. Or you got these, these we watched one the other day, these, this bird in the rainforest that puffs its neck out like this, and it's all bright color, and it does this funky little dance, it's a mating dance. It's really cool. But nothing on this earth was created in God's image except for us. Scripture says we are created in God's image. That means we have the characteristics, not only the features of, of God, what God desires, but also the, some of the characteristics of God. The ability to feel, the ability to, to build civilizations, to build and, and to, to prosper and to, and to take responsibility and to grow. Scripture then says, goes further, it says, so, crea so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This used to be such a simple truth. Now, not so much for the world, at least not for the world. You are created in God's image. Men, you were created male. Ladies, you were created female. There is no in-between. There's no adjustments. You are created. There are two when, and, and certainly we have this thing called confu gender confusion now. Let me tell you, the scripture is very clear. There's no confusion here. There are two genders, male and female. Used to be we wouldn't have to talk about that, but now we do. As a church, we need to understand and stand for that and say, no, the Bible says God created man and woman in his image. And then he goes for scripture in Genesis, goes further and says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That means create civilizations. That's what it means. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, that's the bugs, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. You were created by God in his image, male and female. And you were created for a purpose. Look right there. Those words that, that the scripture uses says, bless them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over. That's a purpose. 
God has a purpose for his creation. And with that purpose, you were created with responsibilities to take on those responsibilities. Now, we look throughout the Bible when we try to answer kind of that clear definition, what is a man? What defines a man? And there's, there are men throughout, certainly godly men, that throughout the Bible, we look at, you could look at David, you could look at Samson, you could look at uh, uh, Moses or Joshua. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was a man, a godly man. You have Noah, you, you, the list goes on and on. New Testament, you see Paul, you see Peter, you see James, you see John. Now, when you look at those, were any of those men flawless and perfect? No. Save one, Jesus Christ. And so we have this little, I think we get this visual that Jesus was kind of this frail uh, guy who, who just loved nature and, and walked around from place to place. And uh-uh. Jesus was the man's man. I firmly believe that. If you look at his trade, Jesus was a carpenter by trade. He learned it from his earthly father. That means by trade, as a carpenter, he was strong. He had strength in order to do what he did. He didn't have a residence, you know, a, a permanent home. He traveled throughout all of, uh, of the areas uh, in, in that time, and, which means a lot of times he may have, he may have slept outdoors, he knew how to you know, build fire. He knew how to do all these things that we do uh, for, for sometimes just for fun. He knew how to do it because he knew how to live. And he is the only one who went through all of life facing the same trials and temptations that we do and was without sin. Why? Because he was fully God and fully man. And he came with his purpose and his responsibility. So as I studied and prepared for this, I looked at all these other men, specific men. But then as I continued, I began looking at Jesus's teachings. And one stuck out to me uh, through it almost like a new lens. And that's, that's found in Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be most of the time for the rest of the, this time, the time we have together. Luke chapter 10 begins in verse 25. Now, you're probably going to be familiar with this. This is, if you've been around church, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. I, I kind of reflected in, in the nearly 15-some years that I have been uh, in ministry, as, either as a pastor, as a church planter, or, or even right now. I don't know how many times I have preached on the Good Samaritan, but I've never done it through this lens. Because when I reflected on this and I prayed about this, I began to see Jesus' story, Jesus' parable, the purpose. He is giving us different definitions of different men. He's giving us examples of men. Let's, let's just read this together. In verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Leave it to an attorney. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, this man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells this story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In this parable, Jesus is giving us five different examples of men. Very often we'll focus on the three, the, the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan. But there's five involved here that I think we can draw some characteristics and, and, and really uh, look at it and maybe even examine ourselves. And there are times when, when each of us kind of has these same characteristics. The first one is the victim. This is the man who was beaten and broken, in his case physically, and he was left for dead. He was in desperate need of rescue. He could not do anything on his own. He was too injured, and he needed help. The next one we see is, is the robbers themselves, or the robber. Now, we don't get a backstory as to why these individuals became robbers. Now, we can assume, and, and what, sometimes what in, in what my professional life, I deal with a criminal element, and I've said it a few times when I've preached here, I don't think anybody sets out to start breaking the law or to start... Uh, robbing or, bur or burglarizing or doing any of these crimes. I, I don't think they start out that way. But over time, either out of a selfish intention, or they're motivated by, by selfishness, that say, that guy has what I want, and I'm going to take it, no matter the cost. But sometimes, maybe it's even about desperation. Maybe they they're feel that they're, they're so desperate, they don't have any choices. So selfish motive or desperation, we don't really know, but there's two characteristics there could be there. The next one is the priest. Now, Jesus was so, so strategic in, in, his, in the way he told the story. The priest, I think when you read, most of us would think that the priest or the, maybe the pastor, wouldn't he be the one above all these others to help someone in need? 
But he's very, Jesus very specifically says, no, he didn't help. He identified the person, and then he did what? He intentionally went on the other side of the road to pass the guy by, to say, I don't see you. And so, so when we look at that, and we look at kind of that, that idea, I think we can draw a conclusion that the priest represents maybe an element of conceit. Maybe, he's, maybe he has too much pride. He's going, this is not my problem. Understand, too, in, in the Jewish culture that, that Jesus was teaching in, understand that, that, that the Jews believe, believed at that point that anyone who had that, something like that, as badly injured as he was, or some, that bad circumstance that happened to this guy, he was surely a sinner. That's what they believed. That was cultural. That he kind of brought it on himself. And so that priest goes, I don't have time for this. Somebody else is going to have to deal with this. i got to get to where I'm going. Maybe he's, he's, got, a, he's got a mission, and he's, only, he's got tunnel vision, right? And he became dismissive. Out of sight, out of mind. Then you have the Levite. Now, the Levite, in contrast to the priest, a Levite in the culture was incredibly what we might call legalistic, particularly when it came to being uh, actions of ceremony. So for him, if the Levite would have stopped and touched, we, we assume Again, we don't have a backstory, but we can assume because he's on his way to Jerusalem, right? They're all going to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, most likely to worship. And for him to touch a, a man who was physically bleeding and broken would have made him ceremonially unclean. And he would have to go through a whole rigmarole of sacrifice and of offerings and all these actions and physically clean, cleaning himself in order to be ceremonially clean for church. So he didn't want to bother with it. And then you have the Samaritan. The Samaritan Jesus uses is incredible. It's so strategic. Because you got to understand a little backstory on Samaritans. In Jewish culture, Samaritans were secondary citizens. They hated each other. They did not like each other. In fact, if you look in the story of John 4, which is the woman at the well, You'll see that the disciples intentionally try to get Jesus on his way to go around Samaria because they didn't want to have any conflict. They didn't want to have to deal with them. So, but the Samaritan in this story reflects the God-shaped man. So it's interesting that, that Jesus did that. What does the Samaritan represent? He represents an individual who is concerned, who is and has a desire to assist someone else, someone in need. Most of all, he's the guy that takes ownership of the situation. He accepts the responsibility for another individual. He doesn't even know. And there are certain characteristics that, that he represents, that Jesus points out, that I think are important when we talk about we as men accepting responsibility. Me as, we as godly men accepting responsibility. The first thing Jesus says is that per, that individual was compassionate. 
Now, right there in 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion is is just a a sense of, I, I need to act. I need to Someone is in need. I need to help. I am going to f- have compassion on that person. They, they, they are broken. They're injured. They need assistance, and I'm going to step in. And with that, Scripture then says that he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, hold on to the oil and wine just for a minute. But what it, what it is representing is this Samaritan stopped out of compassion because he had a genuine care for someone else. The God-shaped man, the characteristic, when we accept responsibility means that we are compassionate and that we have a genuine care for the well-being of others. That's what scripture tells us. And then goes even further in this story, it says that he, he brought him, put him on his own animal. Now, Keep in mind that the Samaritan in this story, we can assume he's on his way to Jerusalem for some specific purpose, right? Maybe it's business, maybe it's family, I don't know. There's no, we don't really know. Let's say it's business. The point is, he had a mission, and he stopped his mission out of compassion and a genuine need to help someone else. And he met the need of someone else. See, the, the one who accepts responsibility meets the needs of others. It says that, it, that he took, took his own animal, which means he put this guy who was damaged and injured and hurt, n- still near death, he put him on his own animal, which means the Samaritan is walking the rest of the way. He no longer has the comfort of his animal to get him where he wants to go. He's given that. Not only that, but then he gets to Jerusalem and he, he rents a room. He rents a room that he's not going to have the nice bed. He puts the guy in the bed, which means he's either sleeping on the floor or he's, maybe he's in a chair. I don't know. And it says he tended to his needs. He took care of him all night. I don't know if you've ever taken care of somebody who's injured and is in pain all night long, but there's always those times when you're in pain that you hurt and you, maybe you yell or your your moan and and he stayed up with him all night long to help him through through so this man could get rest and heal and then the next day so we meet the needs of others and then the next day scripture says he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said take care of him and whatever more you spend i will repay you when i come back now this is this is taking ownership so remember that, that this, guy, this Samaritan took oil and wine, probably for another purpose, gave it and used it on somebody he doesn't even know to tend to wounds. He rented a room out of his own pocket and paid for this man to, to be able to rest and sleep and heal. And then the next day, when he needed, the Samaritan needed to conduct whatever reason he was there, delegated the innkeeper and gave him money out of his own pocket. Because the guy had nothing, right? In his own pocket, gave him two denarii, and then goes further and says, I want you to take care of him. And 
here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be back. We don't know if it's the same day, a couple days later. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Because what he says is, when I come back, whatever you pay above, if this isn't enough, whatever you pay, I will pay you back. Which means don't expect anything from this guy. He's not going to be able to give you anything. But I am I'm also not going to leave it on you, the innkeeper. I'm going to take care. I'm going to see this through. When he takes from his own for a different purpose, that means that he's sacrificing what he has for somebody else. He's sacrificing for others. That's a characteristic. We put The God-shaped man puts others' needs in front of their own. And sometimes it takes some sacrifice. Now, I, I want to stop just for a minute because when we look closely at this particular scripture, we see, I think, and when we read it through this lens, we see that Jesus is giving a clear picture of himself. All of us can, can have some of these same characteristics that these other four individuals had. We can have some of the characteristics of the Samaritan, but Jesus is the quintessential, the ideal man. One thing that really I look at is every one of us, friends, meets the definition, the characteristics of the victim. There are times when we are broken. There are times when we feel like life is beating us down, particularly amongst our own sin. Those things that drive a wedge between us and God, and we are in desperate need of rescue. And Jesus, accepting responsibility, came, fully man, fully human, lived the perfect life, the life without sin, and went on the cross out of his genuine care and compassion for his creation to sacrifice himself, not for his own sake, but for all of ours. Jesus sacrificed himself in order to meet our need of forgiveness and salvation for our, the sins that we commit. And when, when we understand that, and we look at it, that we fit that shape and we fit and, and begin to understand that once we have been rescued, once we have been saved and we acknowledge Christ and that he is the son of God and that he came on the earth to die for my sins and I ask forgiveness for my sins, he washes those sins away, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's what scripture says. And then we have hope of eternal life and salvation that carries us forward to and should be the driving force of accepting responsibility for our life as men to become and aspire to be the man that God created us to be each and every day. Now, there's some more areas where when we accept that gift, I think we, we want to identify these. 
Because remember, the God-shaped man accepts responsibility. How does he do that? The first thing is this. The God-shaped man accepts responsibility for his faithfulness. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by all the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, that tells us when we are the God-shaped man that God, and becoming what God wants us to be, we accept responsibility for our faithfulness. That means we never, ever stop growing in our faith. Ever. We do not neglect our faith. We continue to grow and walk in faith. We continue to, to ask God in our prayers and for inter, interceding and for all the things that we need. Uh, earlier I said, you know, Paul says this, that we are to pray for each other and to pray without ceasing. We're to never stop. We're to never stop growing in our, through our study and our desire to dive into God's word and to apply that to our lives and growing into what God wants us to become. We're to never stop that faithfulness. We're never to stop our fellowship with, with one another. The growth that comes in faith collectively and in community, that's why we meet together so that we can encourage each other. We're never to stop that. And the man, the God-shaped man accepts responsibility for that fact. He accepts responsibility to lead his family in that fact. The next thing is that God, the God-shaped man accepts responsibility for forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The God-shaped man accepts responsibility for forgiveness. Forgiveness for those who may have wronged him or done something against him, he forgives. More importantly, he, is, he takes responsibility for his choices and the decisions that he makes. And when he has wronged someone else, he seeks forgiveness. Particularly when we wrong God. And we seek his forgiveness. We should never neglect that. Accept responsibility for it. And when we do that, and as we walk, we understand that the God-shaped man also accepts responsibility for carrying out God's will. All the way back to creation, we are created with a purpose and with responsibilities, to have dominion over the earth. The responsibility in today's walk, in the Christian walk, is to further God's kingdom, is to teach others what we have learned, particularly the next generation. We cannot neglect the next generation because I guarantee you, friends, the world is not going to turn on a hat and all of a sudden everything is going to be great. And everything's going to get back to the way it was. No, that ship has sailed. We may get some, the pendulum may swing and we may get some resemblance of what we once were, but the damage is there. And so more, most importantly now, as men of God and women of God, 
As a church of God, we need to accept that God has a will and a purpose, and we accept responsibility to carry out that will and purpose. Romans 8, 28, one of my favorite verses in all of all the Bible says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We pass it on, we learn and we grow, then we understand that God's will. And that leads to that last thing that the God-shaped man accepts responsibility for building others up. It's not, I don't think it's in your notes. This comes from Jude. And I joked earlier today, it comes from Jude chapter 1, because there's only one chapter in Jude. Verse 20 through 21 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that takes to eternal life. What an amazing promise this is for us. We have a responsibility, man. God designed you with a purpose to help lead your families, to help lead them in such a way and to build up your families and through building up our families to build up our, our, our friends and our coworkers and those people that are in our circle that God puts us in, in, in our circle and to build them up. People maybe even we don't really even know and we're to breathe life into those persons. We're to speak truth into those individuals and build them up so that they can soon become the, the men and the women that God wants them to be. Particularly the next generation of the church. It is not going to get easier. And now is the time to be the God-shaped man that he designed you to be. And accept responsibility for the life that he has given you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for this time and opportunity to share together in spirit and in truth. Father, lead us in the way that we should go. Teach us from your word and, and let us not rely on our own understanding, but, but speak to us in a new way and, and lead us closer and closer to you. Father, don't allow for us to neglect our faith in you. Embrace us and encourage us to move each day closer and closer to you until the day that you take us home. Father, I pray for all those here and all those at home, maybe listening and watching, that you inspire and encourage them to become the creation that you want them to be. Father, more of you and less of us. In Jesus' name, amen.